Hi there, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. This is MLEX's weekly podcast covering the top regulatory news of the moment. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. Now, in just under 10 minutes from now, Laurel Henning will be joining us from Sydney to have a chat about an incredible civil cartel lawsuit that has been unfolding in an Australian court. The Bluescope Steel trial has been action-packed from day one, with secretly recorded tapes, international meetings and itemised restaurant bills that prompted questions about a witness's sobriety. Antitrust has never been this dramatic. First up, though, it's time to put on your headset and get your gaming console out because we're about to delve into Microsoft's play for Activision Blizzard. That's a company that owns games such as Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. So why is this deal problematic, I hear you ask? Well, in the US, the concerns are vertical. And don't worry, we'll get into what that means in just a moment. Luckily for us, our US-based M&A reporter Curtis Eichelberger has co-authored a fine piece of analysis about why this deal and its regulatory review is so significant. And Curtis joins us right now. Uh, So firstly, just run me through what antitrust concerns there are with this deal, Curtis. Sure. Uh, Microsoft develops video games, but they also distribute them on several platforms, on their Xbox, uh, PC, streaming, mobile. And Activision Blizzard also develops games, some of which uh, are distributed through Microsoft's platforms. So what we have is a horizontal deal between video game developers and a vertical deal where a distributor is buying a third party that makes video games. All right, so it's clearly uh, presenting some complexities. Now, this uh, is without doubt a very big deal in the sense that it's 68.7 billion US dollars. That's a considerable amount of uh, money. But why do we care so much about this deal? Is it just about the size? You know, it's not unlawful to be big uh, or, or really, really successful. Microsoft is both. It's that the administration feels that there's a lack of competition in the US. And the antitrust agencies, especially the FTC right now, seem to be going all out to slow down merger reviews. They're rewriting horizontal and vertical merger guidelines. Uh, And we assume in ways that will help them interpret current laws that will benefit them when they go to court. Congress is working on a bipartisan basis to pass new antitrust laws and is promoting um, uh, legislation that would offer uh, more funding for the agency's investigative efforts. And central to all these efforts are the tech companies and the way they've gained so much power within our economy. Okay, well, given that background, given the prospect of changed guidelines, changed laws, are you uh, therefore arguing that the antitrust agencies shouldn't, in fact, be looking at this merger? No, no, it's, it's reasonable to, re- to review the deal, uh, even to take a deep dive, which we would expect in what we call a second request, which would take several months. But what we're looking at is this analysis is likely to exceed traditional measures. What we're asking ourselves and what your readers should be thinking about is this. In this evolving state of antitrust in the U.S., will regulators allow a big tech company like Microsoft to execute a deal this large, expanding its reach into new innovative markets where they can become a dominant player because of the power they have in adjacent markets. And here, let me just share this with you. Here's something Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, said not long ago about 
you know, these big tech companies, you know, making lots and lots of acquisitions. She said, this is a phenomenally important issue and one that both agencies have been studying, in part because it's not new. It's something we've been seeing for the past two decades, where the top five tech firms have made hundreds of acquisitions, many of which fall beneath the radar. This is a big, big concern for the antitrust agencies, the administration, Congress, and a lot of small companies who want to challenge the big guys someday. So this deal looks exactly like the sort of deal the agencies are trying to stop, or at least hinder. Okay, so uh, Curtis, let's cut through some of the analysis and maybe address what's at the heart of the government's concerns. How do you see it? Well, uh, the agencies have been interested in how powerful franchises in one industry can use their size and influence throughout the supply chain to weaken competitors, to create barriers to entry, uh, and increase seen and unseen consumer costs. In, in this case, here's this massive company with unbelievable amounts of capital and really smart people and, and, and lobbyists and political influence, and they're buying one small, reasonably small, uh, maker of video games. Now, I know it's a, it's a very large dollar deal, but they're not going to have a huge percentage of the, you know, the global market or even the U.S. market after this. So, so what they do is they, they buy a, a reasonably small company and they kind of pull that into the fold. Then they make another acquisition and another acquisition. Before long, the question becomes, you know, do these, do these video game makers get to the point where, you know, the idea is to get an idea for a company and start making products, and then the business model is really to sell it to Microsoft. Is, is that where we're going? Is, is it, because that undermines innovation. You know, that creates barriers to entry. It makes it more difficult. And the question is, when you look at the tech companies today, the big complaint isn't the deals they're making today. It's the, you know, 100 mergers they did of tiny companies before they were really competitive or strong in previous years. And now they've got this big business and all the power and influence that comes with that. So the question is, is this the beginning of that? And how do you go about uh, stopping that? So, I mean, right now, you know, these, these tech companies are like, you know, monster trucks and the, the antitrust agencies are throwing chairs and tree branches in their way, trying to slow them down and discourage them. You know, all waiting for help to arrive from Congress in the form of, of new antitrust laws. Yeah, and in the meantime, the monster trucks keep moving on and crushing all of the chairs and everything that's before them. But it's it's not just this deal, right? I mean, maybe you should remind us of the other examples of this involving tech companies. There, there's another one going on right now. Um, last year, the FTC launched a uh, in-depth investigation into Amazon's acquisition of MGM. Now, you know, the lion, right? You, you, you know MGM in the heyday yep. was huge and very powerful. It's not so big and powerful anymore. It's a library of some films, has the Bond films. It's uh, got a few things, but it's not what it, you know, what it was. And the analysis of the deal has included questions into Amazon's businesses beyond the traditional approach of inquiries into the market directly affected by the transition. We've reported that the, the questions that the agency's asking relate not only to businesses directly aligned with the entertainment industry, but also broadly about Amazon. And practitioners and former antitrust officials believe there's no feasible theory of harm that would allow the agency to block that deal. But the agency watchdogs, antitrust watchdogs, have been promising a a strict, heavy-handed approach to acquisitions, especially by big tech companies. 
and the FTC is months into an investigation of the deal, and we're, we're really waiting for them to say, you know, here's the problem we have. Here's the theory of harm. And this just continues to go on. Uh, okay, and I, I realize it's early days, but on the Microsoft deal, is it likely to be seen as problematic? Or do you think that this deal is problematic? You know, it's, uh, it is the beginning. We're really just digging in on this Microsoft Activision deal, and it's difficult to say just yet. But, it, you know, but generally speaking, at this early stage, it looks fixable. I'm just not sure at this juncture whether the government wants to fix deals anymore. I mean, you know, James, frankly, that was never the intention of Congress when it wrote the antitrust laws more than 100 years ago. The laws instruct the government to block illegal deals. It doesn't instruct government lawyers to fix illegal deals. That evolved years later. The law instructs the government to block illegal deals. That's it. And it appears that the government, at least right now during the Biden administration, might be looking more towards leaning back in that direction, not to fix deals, but to remedy them, meaning make you sell off assets. So there's still some fixing going on, but, but less negotiation and settlement and more taking a harder approach to, uh, to resolving these antitrust problems. Curtis, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, James. Curtis Eichelberger covers mergers and acquisitions from Washington, D.C., but was speaking to us there from Philadelphia. The analysis of the Microsoft Activision Blizzard deal that Curtis has written, along with our colleague Austin P., is now online and ready for you to read and enjoy. Our website address is mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just head for the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis, as well as our archive of podcasts. And subscribers, of course, have access to the full portfolio of MLEX's reporting on this deal, which includes some interesting analysis by our Brussels-based M&A team. Andrew Boyce and Natalie McNellis have wargamed the regulatory response in the EU, and that too is a very fascinating read. Now, we have plenty more for you today, so don't go anywhere. And it goes without saying that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. The Blue Scope Steel cartel case has been unfolding in an Australian court over recent months, and we're now waiting for a ruling from the federal court trial judge. The allegations are that Australia's Blue Scope Steel and its former sales manager Jason Ellis attempted to lure steel producers and distributors in Taiwan and India and rival steel distributors in Australia into a price-fixing arrangement. So conceptually that is quite clear. But can a cartel be a cartel if the person allegedly orchestrating it says that participants are under no obligation to follow the agreed prices? How binding does a deal have to be for it to be price-fixing? This question has dominated the civil trial brought by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, or ACCC, and Laurel Henning is MLEX's senior correspondent in Sydney. She's been covering this case, and she joins me now. So, um, firstly, Laurel, maybe give us an outline of the allegations uh, that have been made against Ellis and the company itself. Absolutely, James. So first of all, let's just uh, highlight the fact that this is a civil cartel case rather than a criminal cartel case. And we can get into the detail of that a little bit later in our 
conversation, but the allegations against Ellis and against Bluescope related to a recommended resale price list that Ellis was taking to meetings with uh, distributors of steel products, not only in Australia, but also in India and in Taiwan, and where he was promoting this price list. And the allegation was really that he was in that promotion of the price list, that he was attempting to reach an agreement or understanding with those distributors. Now, crucially, the agreement wasn't reached, and that's not what the case is about. It's the alleged attempt which led to the lawsuit and which culminated in this civil case, which ran for quite some time, actually, considering the size of who was involved and the number of the number of um, of accused. It ran from the end of August to sort of early October, and then there was a sort of brief pause, and then we had closing arguments from late October to early November of last year. Now, there was a moment of drama in court because there was a secret recording of one of those uh, meetings that Ellis attended. Tell me something about that. Yes, so this was right at the start of the lawsuit, at, uh, at the beginning of the court hearings. This was on the first day. I think it was a, a day that you were listening to the proceedings, actually, James. Yes, so that's right. You've probably got a bit more insight into the, the goings-on there. But it was a recording, I believe, um, that was made by executives at Yefwe, which is a Taiwanese uh, steel distributor, when they met with Ellis. Yes, look, it was a a fascinating bit of audio because it really illustrated, firstly, how careful Ellis was being with the language that he was using. We can talk about that a bit later on. But secondly, it was just fascinating to be in the room when someone was talking about uh, prices with arrival. I mean, it, it uh, it really was an interesting moment of insight. But let's talk about the case itself. What, uh, what are the main arguments uh, that have been put forward by the ACCC and by both Bluescope and Ellis? Well, I think as my university professors would have probably told me when I was doing my English degree, this is really a question of semantics. (laughs) Um, Ellis's lawyers were really going hard on this idea that he'd never used the word commitment. And Bluescope's lawyers also said that this is really what this comes down to is just an unsuccessful, but entirely lawful business strategy. By contrast, the ACCC is saying that if this isn't a breach of competition law, then that conclusion would just fly in the face of Australian legislation. So why is the language used by Ellis in these meetings so important? Why has that featured so prominently in your reporting? Well, it comes back to that recording that you that we were talking about earlier and that you heard in the courtroom, this rehearsed style in which um, Ellis was speaking with these Taiwanese executives. The fact that he had sought legal advice beforehand, though that shouldn't really mean that anyone is guilty of anything, of course. It could even mean that you're trying to avoid legal action and you're being extra cautious and that's that should be no criticism against him. But it goes back to the to that recording, the fact that he had said, you know, he'd practiced 20 times this specific phrase, the fact that he was saying, it's not compulsory that you follow this, you can follow your own, you can do whatever you want, you don't, you can follow it or not, follow it or not, it's it's up to you. And he, he did repeat that a lot when he was giving evidence, you can do it or not, it's up to you. Just these phrases kept coming up, even in the courtroom, not only in the recording, but even in the courtroom. And then we had sort of a very interesting interaction between the lawyers when they were giving closing submissions. So Michael Hodge, who was acting for the ACCC, said, you know, the fact that they don't use words of commitment doesn't sig- doesn't have the significance for the case at all. Whereas Cameron Moore was saying, sorry, he was Bluescope's lawyer. And he's, he was saying in his closing arguments that 
what the judge has to find here is this this meeting of the minds, which is a key part of the Australian legislation for the, the regulator's lawsuit to be successful. Even if it isn't binding, there needs to be this idea that it's inevitable that what's being said is a commitment is being sought, even if it's not verbally said. The idea is that someone couldn't avoid understanding that there is the substance of an obligation that's being sought. Well, let's talk about the trial, which you covered uh, You covered nearly every day, except for that first day that I listened in. And there was a lot of colour and movement, as we say in the journalism business, lots of uh, very interesting witnesses. Maybe tell me something about that. Well, yes, much was made, particularly of a dinner that took place in a Melbourne restaurant um, in Melbourne's uh, Crown Casino complex. I think it was back, it was a long time ago anyway, whenever this whenever this dinner had taken place. And it was between the manager of a Victoria-based um, distributor, Wright Steel, and his name was, was Griff Wright. And he'd met with Ellis and with Ellis's sort of right-hand man at the time, Matthew Hennessy. And the table ordered we were told four Bombay Sapphire Gins, a Lord Nelson beer, a $115 bottle of wine, three orders of Highland Park Scotch. And they really went to town on this receipt, on this drinks receipt. And in part, that's because it meant that lawyers defending Ellis and the company could sort of suggest that perhaps you'd had too much to drink and perhaps Wright couldn't recall entirely what was happening without trying to sort of criticise him for his um, alcohol intake. Um, but but the other side of that coin was, OK, but over a very long period of time, maybe this wouldn't have affected your memory that much. And, and perhaps the defence lawyers were making a little bit too much of, of the alcohol. But it made for some colourful reporting, that's for sure. Yes, and we all uh, read your reports with uh, great interest. So thank you for all of the work you've done on that front. But just before we go and putting aside the uh, Blue Scope uh, coverage for a moment. You've been writing about the new head of the ACCC and also the uh, new deputy commissioners taking up their roles uh, this year. This is particularly important for our coverage. Uh, tell me something about uh, the, the the new names and who are they and what do we need to know about them? Absolutely. So replacing Rod Sims at the end of March after he spent more than a decade at the head of the Australian Competition Regulator will be Gina Cascotlieb. She's a partner at the moment at Sydney law firm Gilbert and Tobin, and she founded their competition and regulation uh, sort of group. Um, she's a leading antitrust lawyer and she will be joining the ACCC alongside her former colleague, Liza Carver, who is a partner at the moment at Herbert Smith Freehills. Now, we don't know what that will look like and how the ACCC might operate differently or otherwise under their leadership. But what we do know is that it will end up meaning that the ACCC will then have three ex-private practice lawyers at very senior levels in the ACCC, which is something that a lot of people have remarked on in speaking with me about these appointments and how much it might impact some of you know Rod Sims's pet projects over the last few years, the digital platforms inquiries that we've been covering that are still ongoing and will be ongoing for the next few years, and perhaps his criticisms of merger laws. These are two very senior merger mergers and acquisition lawyers and how will they approach that differently. So lots of things to, to look at closely and especially of a special interest will be how do they handle things that are outside of the portfolios that they really focus on as lawyers. So the consumer law will, will actually be a real point of interest there as well. Laurel, thank you so much for your tireless work covering Australian affairs. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, James. 
Laurel Henning is MLEX's senior reporter in Sydney, Australia, and will post a link to both Laurel's review of the Blue Scope Steel Cartel lawsuit and her analysis of the key personnel changes at the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission at the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. Now, very sadly, that's all we have time for on today's podcast. But the good news is that we'll be back in your feed next week at more or less the same time. And I hope you can join me then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for listening. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.